What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, I have Big Frank, who uh, played in Carrie Nation and also did Nemesis Records. Uh, it's a cool interview. We go through the early days of uh, him working with Golden Voice and some of those early shows and then being at Fender's Ballroom for uh, Lots of That Chaos. And then we go into Carrie Nation, and I go through a lot of my favorite uh, selections out of the Nemesis catalog. Uh, he was a great interview, and I really appreciate his time. Uh, please support the podcast by subscribing to it wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please give it a like, rate it, review it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash 185 miles south. And uh, you put in a dollar, three dollars, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever you can do to support the podcast monthly. And there's bonus content back there uh, behind the paywall. We do extra podcasts basically digging into like behind some of these episodes. So um, whoever we interview, we go through some of their discography, uh, create a Spotify playlist. You listen along. We talk about some songs, talk about how we feel about the interview and so forth. Um, check that out. Patreon.com slash 185 miles south. And let's get on with the show. Hundred eighty-five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, I have the legendary Orange County hardcore hero, Big Frank, and uh, he was the would you say the owner or the runner of Nemesis? Yeah, I owned it. I ran it. Yeah, and then also of Carry Nation fame. Yeah. So, and okay. we'll get we will get into all that. But as a as a veteran, I got to know, uh, like, what year and and how did you get into punk and or hardcore? Um. Well, I mean, I got into punk before hardcore. Um, basically, you know, the Ramones was my gateway in. And, uh, you know, I, I, I saw that first Ramones record in a, in a record store and just was like, I was just taken in by the cover and, you know, I just like went from there. And then I had, uh, I had, um, there was a power record in, um, in West Covina that I used to go to. And there was a girl there who was really into the L.A. punk scene, and she turned me on to all the L.A. bands like Axe and the Weirdos and the Bags and the Eyes, like all the Danger House, all the early Danger House bands. And the, you know, I I love I love the punk rock scene, but I was never I was never into the the drinking and drug culture of that they seem to embrace a lot of it, you know, just, and so for me, hardcore really started, well, I guess before with the bad brain, but the one that, you know, when I heard, you know, minor threats lyric, that was pretty much it. You know, it's like, Oh wow. Okay. There are people that feel the way I do, you know, I don't have to be, 
I don't have to live this weird lifestyle that I'm not really a part of. And and are you around when the minor threat seven inches come out? Oh yeah, yeah. And so how 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 are they received? Like is is someone that's like already been into punk for a couple years in Southern California, and then minor threat filler comes out? Like what? Oh man, you, you know. You, okay, here's here's the funny thing is, I think I heard the second seven inch before I heard the first one. <laughs> I'm pretty certain I heard, yeah, I, I'm pretty certain that I heard one before I heard the other. I don't know how far apart they were released. Probably in the same year, yeah, right? Yeah, it's the same year. They're both 81, I think. Yeah, you know, so it was, I just happened for whatever reason, I happened, this is like, uh, oh, God. No, 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 that wouldn't have been, yeah. It wouldn't have been pre-Zed Records, but um, do you know about Zed Records? Yeah, I, w- I went several times, including uh, the final week. I think I went, like, the very last day, maybe, whenever it was, like, 90% off. <laughs> that was oh, a wild God. day. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But but definitely not in the, not in the 80s, or uh, I guess that would have been the tail end of the 90s, like 97-ish, 97, 98? Yeah, I lost track because I... Um, I moved away. I'm, I'm jumping all over the place. This is kind of getting, um, but yeah, I moved away before the ending happened. Okay. Uh, um, I don't know. Should I stay on topic? <laughs> no, well, we can talk about Zeds a little bit, but it was, it was super cool. That's, that's funny that you weren't there, but I remember like the, I think it was like the well, I'm just fight. trying to think of where I bought those seven inches. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 I was trying to remember where I bought them. Uh-huh. Like, you know, right offhand, like I can't remember I remember going into a record store in in um, Colorado because I was um, dating someone, and for some reason we ended up in Colorado. And going into this Wax Tracks record store, and they had like they had m- multiple copies of the first seven inch on different, like with the different colored sleeves. Right. I was like, how how are these still? Why is no one buying these? Like these are like. <laughs> And this is like when they were already kind of, I think they were still pretty collectible, you know, and they just had them sitting on the shelf. Holy but God. I don't know where, I, I can't remember where I, I actually bought those first two seven inches. But yeah, um, I think I heard in my eyes before I heard filler. And then, I mean, it was immediately after I was like, you know, it's one of those things where as soon as you hear something, you're like, well, do they have anything else? You know, and then I was like, oh, well, they have this other seven inch. It actually came out first. I'm like, oh, I got to have that, you know, and then so it was pretty short lived. And then I was just like, oh, my God, this is this is it. You know, you just, you know, it wasn't because I wasn't even I wasn't even to that point. You know, I mean, the lyrics to like Ramon's songs are pretty silly a lot of the time, you know, you know, a lot of. I wasn't really into the lyrics. I was more into the the driving passion of the music. But like when I heard Minor Threat, like they had the driving passion and the lyrics. So it was like it was a perfect a perfect mesh for me. Yeah, were you able to see them when they came out? And did they come out in eighty one or eighty two? Yeah, I saw. I you um, yeah, they played the barn. Remember the. In Riverside? 
Yeah, no, it was, uh, I think it was in Torrance. Okay. And um, it was the Dead Kennedys, Minor Threat, MDC, the Zero Boys, and the Detonators. I might miss the band in there, but I think that's all of them. Jesus. Um, oh, yeah, that was an amazing show. And, you know, the thing was, I wasn't even a huge Dead Kennedys fan. The two bands I went there to see were the Zero Boys and Minor Threat. Yeah, and so and, what was the cap on that place? Oh, God. I, I want to say under 500. Okay, and was it packed to the brim? Yeah, it was packed. Okay. Totally packed. Yeah, and, and j- just so you know, I'm only 40, so I miss this stuff by a long time. So I always try, no, to, okay. I, I always try to get the perspective of like, because all those bands are legendary now. Like, right, right. Did was everyone there? Like, was MDC huge already? Were the Zero Boys huge? Was was it everyone there to no. see everyone? No, they were the only bands that were Minor Threat was had definitely had a following, and Dead Kennedys were already well on their way to being you know huge. But I would say you know you had to really know your shit to know. Like I had. Honestly, I had not heard of MDC to that point. I didn't know Dave at that point. I didn't like, yeah, I didn't. I didn't know much about him. And to be honest, I'm not even sure I saw their set that night. <laughs> I definitely saw the Zero Boys, though. Yeah, and how were they? They, they were amazing. You know, that first record. You, I'm sure you've heard that first record. Yeah, that, I have it. What, what, Vicious Circle. Yeah. Yeah, um, amazing. Yeah, so solid. It's so good. Well, that rules. And then, but what's it like getting into Minor Threat, like, when they come out? Because what's next? Like, nothing nothing really ever touches it again. So, like, what do you latch yeah. on to next? Oh, jeez. Um, well, I mean, there was Minor Threat, and then there was, well, the Misfits. The sure. Misfits, you know, were amazing, too, in their own in their own way, you know, totally different thing, you know, totally different. Well, not, you know, I wouldn't say totally different style, but, you know, in a way, you know, different uh, subject matter for sure. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and yeah, when, yeah. when was the first time that you were able to see them? I saw them on the Walk Among Us tour. Oh my God. And how was it? Do you remember where you saw them at? Yeah, well, I saw them twice in one night. Yeah. I saw them, they played at the Whiskey, mm-hmm. and that was uh, an amazing show. And then I got word during the show that they were going to do a second show at Al's Bar. And so, like, we all piled in the car and raced over to Al's Bar. And that's become kind of a legendary show, too. Yeah, and a legendary place. And so I've I've been in the whiskey. What was the cap on Al's Bar? Oh, Al's Bar was probably a couple hundred. And, Not very big. And again, it was packed to the brim. Yeah, it was. It was. It was pretty packed, you know. But you know, maybe not. Maybe not as packed as you think, because I think it was meant to be kind of a secret show. Mm. One of those things, like, uh, I kind of like when. Um, I think when Minor Threat came out as a five piece, I think they played the Cafe de Grand, and I didn't get to see that show. 
I never saw him as a five piece. I only saw him in, with the original lineup. Yeah, that's so cool. That's so cool. And now, were you you were involved with uh, Golden Voice in some of the early '80s shows? Is that correct? Uh, pretty much all of them. Okay. Yeah. And so, what was your role there? Um, well, I think I was brought on a, at first because I was. Uh, I think I think I was level headed and I I could talk to people easily and. I could be kind of a peacemaker and so I was brought, but I think I was brought on because I was pretty big, you know, I was fairly, you know, I could, and I could take care of myself. So, you know, they brought me on for security reasons, but then when they realized I actually had a brain in my head too, you know, then I got quite quickly, it moved up to, okay, you're the stage manager. Okay, now you're just, you know, you're pretty much, everything that happens out here on the floor is up to you, you know. It's it's pretty uh, interesting, interesting time period. Yeah, what what year did you start doing that? Um, Early 80s. Okay. I want to say 80, 83. Okay, and do you remember, like, one of the first or few shows that you did? Um... Well, the, the first show, are you hearing that beeping? I'm not. Oh, okay, good. Um, the, um, the first show would have been, well, at the time I was also writing, I was starting to do some writing for Flipside fanzine. Okay. And so, like, I don't know how, sometimes I would hear things, you know, I had, you know, everybody, it was through the grapevine, you know pre-internet and pre free cell phones, honestly, you know, mm-hmm. and like somehow we heard that GBH was going to be in town and they were going to be at this hotel. And so me and Al from Flipside, I'm not sure who else went, but I know it was me and Al went there and interviewed GBH and we immediately hit it off. And I got along with these guys great after talking to him for a couple hours i was like well where are you guys going from here it's like oh well we're playing santa monica civic and then we're going to go on tour i was like well i want to go on the road with you guys <laughs> i had known him for two hours yeah. i was like i just want to go on the road with you and so i just jumped on the road with them oh for the God. next two weeks for the next two weeks and in the meantime i had done the I went with them to the Santa Monica Civic show and ran into Gary Tovar, who ran Golden Voice. And like, this was my first exposure to people. And he, he didn't even like me at first. Like, he was just like, who is this guy? Why is he here? You know, it's like, uh, I'm with them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, everybody had to get their foot in the door somehow, I guess. Sure. So, what was the Santa Monica Civic? Uh, excuse me. What was the Santa Monica Civic Center like? What was the cap there, and and what was like the vibe? Um, a big, um, kind of a union run hall. Very uh, had rules and regulations. Like uh, compared to the Olympic Auditorium or Fenders or Perkins Palace, like those places where we made the rules. Um, Santa Monica Civic had definite, you know, they'd been there for, I don't even know how long they'd been there, you know, at least into the 
sixties or seventies. And, you know, so, you know, they've had years of how to do it right. And, you know, run things, what they thought was right, you know, which they probably were right. But, um, they, they were very structured. Like they, they knew how to do it as opposed to these other ones where we were just kind of figuring it out on the fly. So would it hold like 2,000, 3,000? Oh, no, probably, I, I want to say around 5,000. Oh, my God. And so GBH in 83, this would be them on the City Baby Attacked by Rats album or City Baby's Revenge in that era. And they're, are um, they? Are they... I want to I say before, it's definitely before City Baby's Revenge. Okay. I think it's City Baby Attacked by Rats. Yeah. Okay. And, and they're drawing 5,000 people in Santa Monica? For that show, they did. They, Holy they shit. drew. Yeah. Now, I could be wrong with my numbers. You know, I'm just, I'm just guessing at the size. It, it, it might be, but it was definitely in the three to 5,000 range. It's just mind blowing, like missing that generation and like thinking back that that many people went to see like real legit, like punk bands, you know? Yeah, yeah, it was, well, they, they, I think they, I think they, you know, Golden Voice was really good at loading up bills, too, you mm-hmm. know, if they had, if they'd have the circle jerks on there who were, you know, pretty big at the time, and, you know, and, you know, Bad Religion, who was not what they are now, but, you know, they were still very popular, or Black Flag, you know. So, so what's the vibe in the crowd like? Is it like just a, a cross section of people? Because that's so many people that there has to be like just a bunch of normal dudes. Like not everyone is like a maniac. Yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. That you, there was like you know everything from surfers to you know to you know Venice gang members and you know everything. You know, the the complete. Uh, package of uh, probably curious onlookers and dedicated fans. Yeah, when does it when does the gang thing like start becoming more prominent? Oh. Uh, probably a couple years later there was but yeah, I, I don't know before yeah, I would say mid 80s. Okay. So like these mid 80s is- like this time, this well, this early time is like good vibes. Then kind of, it's just well, I wouldn't say good vibes, but you know, you know, you definitely didn't want to piss off the wrong people. Sure, sure. you had to have you had to have street smarts. You know what I mean? Like, okay, those guys, you don't mess with those guys. Okay, those guys over there, you know, I I don't know. I was always of the the mind that you know I wanted to get to know a couple of them. Maybe if you knew, if you knew a couple of the sensible ones you know, you could get through to some of the other ones or at least keep the other ones off of you. You know, it's almost like a self-preservation tool. I mean, I've had, I can go clear back to junior high school and um, having members of the Crips walk onto my junior high school and beat the fuck out of somebody and then just like walk off the campus. And, you know, you're a little kid. You just saw something straight out of a movie happened and and then like fast forward to a few months later I'm riding my bike through this neighborhood and this 
kid comes up and drop kicks me off my bike and just walks away with my bike. And I knew he was the brother of one of these crips. Sure. And I saw the brother who had done, who had come onto the campus and punched the guy. And I go, Hey man, I know who you are. I have nothing but respect for you. Can I please get my bike back? I got to go clear to the other side of town, blah, blah, blah. And he gave it back to me. So like, I don't know. I think I, I think from an early age, I've had self-preservation tools. That maybe some people didn't have. I, I don't know. No, I, I, feel, I feel the same way. I'm not intimidated by that stuff at all. Like one time I moved into this new apartment complex and like, there's like a full on gang party, like, you know, three apartments down. And, and I just told my roommate who I moved in with, it's like, I'm going to go meet everyone. You know, he's like, yeah. what are you, what are you talking about? Like, you're going to go over there. I was like, of course they live here. Like they don't want right. trouble with their neighbors, you know? And I went and it was funny. Cause like, you know, everyone's out front partying and shit. And like, you gotta be like, Oh, who are you? I'm like, oh, I'm the neighbor. Like, I'm just here to meet whoever lives here. And kind of like the C parts, you know, and you go inside the house and the main dude's in there with like his grandma and shit, you know? And I'm like, yeah. Hey, I'm just your new neighbor came to say hi. You know, I was like, Oh, I appreciate that. You know? And then he's my friend from there on and, and no problems with right. anything, you know, you yeah. got, you got to do that and you got to do it on day one, you know? You, yeah. 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 I agree. You know, you just, you know, you gotta like, I don't know. You just, you know, whatever you gotta do, you know I mean? That, you know, even up to more recently when, you know, I lived in Sacramento and, you know, I could tell what, you know, I'm, I'm really good, I, I guess, from from doing martial arts a, a good chunk of my life. Like, I was really good at, like, going into a room and size, not just walking in blindly, like, seeing what's in the room, who's in the room, where are the exits. You know what I mean? Like, if you have to move quickly, I don't know, just more self-preservation tools. No, I feel you. For for me on that that front, it was like after that great white fire, you know. Oh, was, you, that yeah. you took it right out of my head. That's exactly, especially the knowing where the exits are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then also just kind of oh, sizing yeah. up the whole place, like because so many people would have survived if they would have known that there was an exit like behind the stage. You know that a lot of yeah. people don't think about, it. and it's like, man, that's the way I'm going. But anytime I walk into a room where there's a lot of people, I'm like. Okay, there's there, there's there, you know, like you're just thinking about how you can get out if she hits a fan. You know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, but back to punk, like I just I wanna you're such you know, you have such a, a good long story that I I I need these uh these earlier dudes that were around to just kind of paint the picture of what it was like back then. So if you could pluck out like a couple standout of like that golden voice era before I go into the oh, fen- before I go into the fenders era. Just like right, well, I can even go be- okay. be- before the Golden Voice. There was this guy. Um, I'm sure you've heard of Circle One. Sure, John Macias, John mm-hmm. and he was putting on shows, and it was pretty close to where I lived. And you know, he was good friends with like Aggression, and he was good friends with a lot of bands. You know, because he had a good, a decent band. You know, and. For some reason, he liked me. It was another one of those cases where, like, you know, I I made friends with John Macias. His friends hated me. 
all the people that hung, hung around him did not like me. But for some reason, John liked me. So John would have me come to his shows and work with him, like run his stage. While I was, this was like right at the beginning of Golden Voice or, you know, because there wasn't that many. It was this place called the T-Bird Roller Rink. Okay. And it was, it was right on the edge of Whittier. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. And then those, you know, it, those early Golden Voice shows were just, you know, kind of just organized chaos, you know, and kind of finding the, trying to find the eye of the storm and then don't get caught in the tornado. <laughs> yeah. Is, is there a barrier at the Golden Voice shows? Um, early on, no. Later on, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it just kind of evolved. It's just like, you know, early on, no barricades, just and and the security was all handpicked pretty much by me, mm-hmm. based on what I thought was, you know, intelligence and strength and could handle a situation. You know, I, I wanted people around me that could, you know, help me if shit hit the fan. And yeah. luckily, I always had a pretty good, pretty good group. Yeah, but you're also thinking of the cooler mentality too, right? Like not just like beat it with force. Like you, if you can no, calm no, down yeah, the situation. no, no. I mean, strength, but strength with intelligence, right? Like you know, yeah. I mean, if things go bad, you know, I don't. It was. It would be like if I um, if, if I had if I had to go into war, who would you want next to your side? I well, I'd want um, Delta Force next to my side for a, a team of Navy SEALs. You know what I mean? They're smart, strong, and won't be beat. Yeah, for sure. As opposed to, you know, just a bunch of dudes. Yeah. I mean, I, I would take uh, a prime Patrick Swayze, but what are you going to do? Or Sam Elliott. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Sam Elliott, he'd talk his way out of anything. <laughs> yeah, with that beautiful baritone voice. Yeah, yeah. You know. So, the scene, like, in the... Because obviously, like, if it's drawing like three thousand people, three to five for like these huge shows, um, by the time like it kind of moves from like that, like the Santa Monica Civic to like the Fenders era, is it like is it going down to a thousand people or or like no it- those those Fender shows would if they I think that room that room had a capacity of I want to say under a thousand and they would on any given night have way over 2000 people in there. Oh my God. Yeah. And it was just like a, the walls would be sweating. Yeah. It was, it was, it was pretty nuts. Do you remember? Hard what, to breathe. Do you remember what year like that started? Um, well, there, it was like, um, like 83, 84, 85. I want to say was, the Olympic auditorium heyday mm-hmm. and you know, a little bit earlier, maybe a little bit later, but like that was the, the chunk of it. And then once, um, I forget why it happened, but you know, the Olympics started like having less interest in doing those shows. And so fenders just picked up the slack. And in between there, there was also a, a bunch of shows in Pasadena at Perkins palace. And what was that place like? That was like an old theater 
like, you know, with like balconies and like little, those little alcoves on the sides that like yeah. were like private seats, like were there at one point. Okay. And then all the yeah, seats. It was are... a cool, like a traditional theater. Got you. But the seats are ripped out. The first few rows were like the orchestra pit. Okay. It, basically there was an orchestra pit. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, like, some so, people would be, like, sitting in seats or, like, standing in seated areas, and then there'd be a yeah, pit yeah, down front? Yeah, yeah, you could definitely, yeah, you could definitely, there were seats, but they would, they, the first, I don't know, four, five rows were taken out. Yeah, that's super cool. So, there was an, an open floor, but Perkins Palace was, like, also, that orchestra pit made it a real treacherous place, especially with people trying to stage dive and <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen someone try to stage dive into an orchestra pit, but it doesn't it doesn't usually go well. <laughs> That's great. So what what was Fenders like? Fenders Fenders was kind of crazy. You know, it was in a not a great neighborhood in Long Beach. The police were kind of always on edge. You know, because that was that was a rough area of Long Beach. There was, um, and I don't know that that the I, th- I think like some of the the gang stuff started to really get a foothold and more in Fenders. Maybe it was there at the Olympics, but I didn't see it as much. But in Fenders, it was right in your face, like, and it became harder to control. How so? Just, well, not everybody would listen to you. Gotcha. I mean, that one, you know, like some people would, but then some people wouldn't. And they, they'd just like walk away from you and just like, like, oh, okay, didn't get through to him. You know, I don't know. Do you think that like it was getting bigger and so some of the people at shows were, were disconnected from the music? Like maybe that gang stuff was there in the early days, but like they were actual fans of the music and now as it evolved, like there were some people that actually weren't in the music were just there for like the chaos. Oh yeah, definitely. There definitely were, you know, and a lot of kids came from broken homes and stuff, you know? And so they're, they're, you know, looking for their own families, you know, they're trying to find, you know, the gangs are really attractive to somebody that hasn't had much family structure. Yeah. And was there like a powerhouse gang? Like, or were like they all kind of like equal, like everyone like took their lumps some nights. Um, I wouldn't say they were equal, but um, I hesitate to name names and 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 say one over the other. Sure. Because you know, depending on who showed up and how many of whoever showed up, we could change the odds on any given night. It's, it's strange, like, thinking about a band like Bad Religion, though, and, and thinking that they had, like, an association with, like, a punk gang. Like, they were associated with the lads, right? Yeah, I, I, I suppose. But I don't think any of them were involved. So it might have just been some of their buddies, and, like, it was kind of like yeah, a loose yeah. affiliation. Yeah, just friends. Just friends. Or they just happened to be, you know, fans. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what were the, some of the standout shows that you saw at uh, Fenders? 
at Fender's uh, standout show. I always, I always say that like one of the best standout shows was um, Iggy Pop. That was like he. I I think he had uh, the Stupid Sales as kids on um, in his band. That was a crazy punk show. You wouldn't think of all the shows I saw there that Iggy Pop would be the craziest, and it very well could have been. <laughs> That's so cool. That's so yeah, cool. Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, Slayer, Slayer was crazy. Um, although, I don't know if they played, I'm not sure they played Fenders. I know we did the Olympic with them. Okay. But, um, and then the um, Conflict show at Fenders was pretty legendary. I think that was partly because it was so well documented. Right. Like, like flip side, I, that was actually my doing. I was like, you got to document this show. And like, I got him to do it with multiple cameras and like, like back when people weren't, it wasn't like now, you know, like the eight, five, six, like Sonny sure. does with dual cameras and stuff. And he has like a drum camera and all that. But, I mean, they didn't do that back then. Everyone was one camera standing on the side of the stage and flip side was trying to push it, you know, and trying to do stuff with multiple cameras and stuff. And I got him to go to that conflict show and thank goodness because it's a legendary show now. Yeah. So cool. So cool. Um, on the carry nation seven, inch, it says like 85 to 89. Does carry nation start in 85? We, you know, the funny thing was, Carry Nation actually started before No for an Answer. Mm. We we had a rehearsal, and it was um, it was me and Dave Mello from Uniform Choice. Okay, I for, I forget what we were doing, but we got invited. And he goes, "Oh, these guys want to jam with me." I'm like, "You want to go too?" So it's 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 weird because like that first. It was basically just a rehearsal in 85, I think. And then um, nothing came of it. And then it turned into, then they turned into no for an answer. And I was like, oh, so I guess Terry Nation wasn't going anywhere. And then after no for an answer went down, then Dan wanted to do this project, which, you know, got much better. He just wanted it to be a project. Of course, I wanted it to be the biggest band ever. Sure, <laughs> I, want, I wanted to be a popular band. You know, I just I wanted to, I wanted to do what you know I've seen my heroes do. Yeah, well, I mean, the songs are epic, and if you think about it, in in the Seven Inch comes out in '89, but like, there's yeah. a lot of blueprint hardcore stuff there, like really, like sure. really, like kind of milking like buildups and so forth. It would go on to be like you know, like a blueprint for like a, a strife type band, you know, that blew yeah. up in the nineties. Like you guys really do that build up type stuff really well when no one else is kind of doing that stuff. 89. Um, yeah. I think, it, go ahead. That was, that was a fun time. Yeah. I think that's like really standout stuff, but, uh, that would be jumping ahead to 89. Um, yeah, but also like, so the year before, um, is when you start Nemesis, 1988. Uh-huh. Um, what is the impetus? Like, 
why do you want to go that route and start a label? Well, I'd seen a couple of my friends. Well, Dan had worked Shed Records. Mm -hmm. Dan O'Mahony had worked Shed Records. And I had another friend who had started this label called Sympathy for the Record Industry. Sure. And he had put out like 500 records, like some crazy amount of records. And it was just like, well, this sounds fun. And it's a good way to like, you know, make a mark. And then I started having bands that were coming into Zed all the time. And they're like, man, I wish we could get somebody to put this out. And then I, I kind of figured out how Dan was doing it. So then I started using the same sort of blueprint for running my own label. Yeah, so your first release is Visual Discrimination, Step Back and Listen, correct? Yeah. And I, I, a- I love that record. Oh, good. That's awesome. Yeah, Those Drugs is one of the greatest hardcore songs ever. Awesome. You know? Um, I love it. So how do you come across this band? I came across everybody at Zed. That okay. was like the hub. Sure. You know, everybody. Because if, if I didn't know you, you know, I probably wanted to know you. And, you know, if you were a fairly popular band, I wanted to carry, at the very least, your demo. You know, demos were a big thing. People would bring in these demos and just, you know, like instead and just sell the shit out of them. So cool. Yeah. And so visual discrimination basically had this whole album was done. Like it was recorded and all the artwork was done. I think somebody else might have been like slated to put it out and they didn't. Okay. I was like, well, I think I can put it out. And so they're like, oh, okay, that'd be cool. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. Then I, once I realized I had a formula that would work, it worked in, until it didn't work. You know? Yeah, I mean, because Nemesis is super prolific. You did a ton of stuff. But let's talk about this first record. So how does it feel to go through the whole process and like get the LP in your hands the first time, like knowing that this is something like you created? Um, I don't know. I think I just was, I was so busy at the time. I had no real inkling to admire it. You know, I was just like busy, you know? I mean, I worked basically seven days a week. If I wasn't working at Zed Records, I was working. And basically I wasn't just working at Zed Records. I was running Zed Records because the owner's son, um, you know, he was kind of, he was kind of being more low key. So like he was letting me do everything. So I was basically running Zed records, running my own record label out of Zed records. And then when I wasn't doing that, I was working concerts day and night, you know? <laughs> so rad. You're like, so I didn't really have time to think about what I was doing. It's only when you like get, you know, 20, 30 years out of it. And then you look back and go, Oh yeah, I guess I did do something. <laughs> but are you able to see like what it does for this band? Like to be a, did they have a demo before the LP? I think they did. Okay. Um, but are you able to see I, like what their, what their popularity is like, like pre and post LP? Y- yeah. I mean, but 
the um, it's it's it, 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 it's hard for me to gauge it now mm-hmm. because I was comparing. You know, I was comparing at the time. I was like, I was like, I want to. You know, if Revelation can do this, well, I can do it sort of. You know, I maybe I can't do it as good as Jordan, but like I can do it well enough. You know, and so I was trying to. I was trying to compete with who I saw as like victory or, or revelation, I guess, or, or even smaller, like Dan wasn't really, Dan was just kind of putting out his friends band. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I, I started getting these ideas. I wanted to put out a band from every major city. And, and then I wanted to put out bands from all over the world. It, it, it just never, it never, hit its full fruition. Yeah, well, I, w- I want to go through some of the releases because I love a, a lot in the Nemesis catalog. Oh, cool. Yeah, cool. so, but but VD, what, like, what was this band like in their prime? And, like, were they as wild as some of the rumors are? Um, wh- what rumors? Like, I, uh, well, I, I heard a rumor once that they beat up Chain of Strength. But then I talked to Ryan Hoffman and he said that, that never happened. I don't think that's ever happened. Okay, I I, I don't think I hope not. I, I don't think that's But just that they happened. like they were wild characters like that, like kind of scrappy. Uh, their singer was definitely scrappy. Um, Jeff Banks was uh, a trained boxer at, at some point, but that was much later. That was more when he got into the whole chorus of disapproval For sure. stuff. Yeah, I just but, um, I really like this band a lot. And I think oh, that, that's, that's awesome. I, I think that their comeback, like they did that comeback seven inch in like the the nineties. Jeff wasn't in the band anymore, but the Tim was still singing, and that is like one yeah. of the greatest seven inches. Like especially for like a comeback later. Did you ever hear that thing? You know, I I'd be honest and say I don't think I have. Oh, you got to look it up. It's called Serial Killers, I think, and it's like it might have oh. come out in ninety seven. It is blazing, uh, awesome hardcore. It is so that's good. awesome. Yeah. Jim's a great singer. Did you ever hear the stuff he did with um, Final Conflict? I didn't realize he did anything with them. No, he he did an EP with Final Conflict, and man, that was that was it was a solid record. I'm like gonna, he was, I'm gonna buy it on Discogs tonight. How about that? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. What, I, I wish I could tell you what it's called, but I can't. No, I'll find out. It, I'll go down that rabbit hole. Um, okay. So next after VD, the other one I plucked out was uh, Reason to Believe. You do uh, yeah. the next door seven inch, and this thing is is perfect melodic hardcore. I mean, I love. Yeah, it. I, I would agree. Yeah. How did you feel about it at the time? And then it was also like, was it like a split release with Soul Force? What was what was that all about? No, no. Soul Force did run, did their run, and just they were done with them. And like, I I think it was another case of. They just, I, I just think they had run its course and I think they wanted to do more. And I was like, well, let's do more. Let's, yeah. let's re-release it. And, you know, I because I think the Soul Force run was pretty limited. Like, I, I don't even know how many they did. I want to say they only did like 500 copies. Or, and then you, and just, then you picked it up because you didn't want it to be out. And you did the LP too in 90 and... And I love yeah. the LP, the When Reason Sleep, uh, When Reason Sleeps Demons Dance. Yeah, I love that record too. Oh my god, I love it so much. 
And uh, I actually got really lucky with with that. And I think the the second VD, I found the test presses at um, at Lose Records in San Diego, probably twenty years ago. That's wild. Yeah, and so I, I was able to sell the reason to believe one. Not that I wanted to, but I had to. <laughs> well, actually, I guess I didn't have to. There was I, I'm a huge Tom Waits fan, and there was a there was a Tom Waits test press on eBay. And I basically sold this for the same amount that I was going to buy the Tom Waits one for. So I basically traded for it. But, uh, oh, yeah. Well, that sounds like a, a good, good trade. Yeah. I had to do that. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was one of the best record scores of my life. I remember, like, oh my God, I just got VD and, uh, Reason Weave test presses for four bucks each. Like, this is fucking amazing. <laughs> you know, that's, that's wild. Yeah. It was so cool. Um, did you and Dano were you? Did you beef over who's going to do the carry on, uh, the carry nation seven inch? Oh no, not at all, not at all. You just it was always going to be on work shed. Okay. Yeah, it was. It was never going to be on Nemesis. Okay. There was never any, never even any discussion. It was always going to be. I mean, Carry Nation was got together to be a project band on work shed. Okay. Like it was never met. We didn't get together as a band. Like, okay, we're gonna play and we're gonna tour and here's blah blah blah. You know, everything other than the seven inch was pretty much like any t-shirts or if you've seen any pictures of like the huge backdrop we used to have and like that was all me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you you do get a Carrie Nation song though on your label. Cause you do the no control, the country club seven inch. Yeah. 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 I could too. Yeah. This, we're, we're on the East meets West too. Yes. That's so right. One was sick of it all in killing time. Yeah. What a killer seven inch to do. Save all in killing time. That's amazing. Um, I know. I, I was just like, I had to document that one. It was like, I had gotten all these really cool bands to come out. I mean, that's the only time Vision or Killing Time has ever played the West Coast. Oh, crazy! Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Um, but talking about the No Control of the Country Club, um, this is so cool. Because do you think that like when Fenders was slowing down, kind of the scene shifted over to the Country Club? Because it seems like it got really prolific, and there was a yeah, yeah, it there. did. Okay, it definitely did. Yeah, and and this is this is a killer show to document. Bad Religion instead, VD and Carry Nation, nineteen ninety. Um, yeah, that was the first Carry Nation show too. Oh, was it? Yeah. Do you, were you nervous? That's, were you nervous before you played? No, honestly, I think I've been on the stage so long that it was just like I just took it a step further and put a guitar around my head. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. It was just like it, and I didn't look. I wasn't like looking for. Um, I wasn't looking to people's faces going, oh, I like us, or, you know, I knew we had good songs and I just played them. Yeah, so cool. I, tried, I just tried to play them tight, you know, and that was enough for me. Do you have any other memories of that show? Um, I remember Kevin instead going, wow, you guys are really, you're pretty good. He's like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, thanks, you know, but it was, uh, I, I, I do, I remember Dan saying he, he only wanted to do that one show. Okay. And then, uh, 
one show turned into two shows and then turned into a bunch of shows. And a year later, you know, we had our last show. Yeah. It only lasted a year. Oh, that's crazy. But you, you got some good documentation on that band. I was, I was, Oh yeah. I was Googling around on you guys. There's like a little 15 minute documentary on YouTube, which is pretty rad. Oh, with me and Dan. Yeah. 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 I've seen that. Yes. That was done by, um, this guy, Mario, who was a friend of Igby. I don't know if you know who Igby is. I do. But... I know Igby. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's a friend of Igby and he, he made that little quick Terry nation documentary. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. So also going back to 89, you do the vision in the blink of an ILP. And yeah. So how do you come across them? And this is a really underrated hardcore LP, I think. Oh, I agree. You know, I think it's more appreciated now than it was then. Okay. And still under, underappreciated now. I mean, like these guys are, they're touching like some melody. It's really catchy. It's just a, it's a good, good hardcore LP. How do you meet these yeah. guys and how do you do the LP? The, um, I met them through the guy who was helping me do my distribution. This guy, Kane Boychuk, who ended up being uh, Headhunter Records. He, he ended up um, working with Cargo. and But he, he basically, he's like, hey, these guys from New Jersey, Vision, they're looking for a label. He did this with me for, for a couple bands. And Vision was the first one. I believe Vision was the first. Vision or, yeah, I think Vision was first and then Offspring. Okay. But they were both like, like, Kane didn't know what to do with him. He's like, do you want to put them on your label? I was like, yeah, I'll put them, put them on my label. Yeah, killer. And, and you love the LP back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is going to be a great record, you know. Yeah, I always thought I, I always thought I would do. I thought I had a blueprint that I thought I could do more than I did. And but and how so? I I just thought I would I could sell more. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, I just I didn't I didn't understand why I couldn't sell more. You know, but well, you might I don't have, know. You might have said it yourself because if they only toured out here once. You know that? Yeah, that is not that prolific. No, no. I mean, the, like the hardest working band, you know, probably on my label would have been instead. You know, and they they toured all the time. You know, and they sold a ton of records. Yeah, and that that's who I'm getting to next because the instead will make the difference. Seven inch, one of the greatest hardcore records of all time. Yeah, that I yeah, it's, it's some of the nicest guys you'll ever meet too. You know, just like. <laughs> genuinely nice people, you know, so easy to work with. Like, yeah, so cool. I mean, I didn't meet him until years, years later when they uh, did the reunion stuff. But uh, yeah, but that seven inch is like, man, to a song. I remember one of my bands we played, and we played this house show in South Central in probably ninety seven, ninety eight, and there was <laughs> there was three bands. Like there was four bands playing and three of us covered instead. <laughs> it was like, it was so wow. funny. Yeah. But I mean, that seven, inch, that seven inch just holds up. Um, the next thing I got is obviously you do the, the offspring, the first LP. And, uh, yeah. and so this came to you the same way as the vision, but 
when you hear this, do you, uh, do you, how do you feel about it? And like, do you think that they have the potential to like turn into what they turned into? Oh God, no. If I, if I would have known that, I would have, <laughs> I would have done so much. That would, that would have been like, oh man, that was my, uh, all my friend on that had sympathy for the record industry. I mean, he basically made a career out of those white stripes records, those early white stripes records. Right. And then he, he's like, this is your chance. This is your chance now to have your white stripes moment with these guys. When they broke, I was like, I don't have them under contract. I don't know what kind of contract you had, but I didn't. The, the funny thing about Offspring was um, they were the only band in all the bands I ever released that actually made me sign like a three year, like you're, we're on your label for three years and then we're done. And they get, like, and they get the rights after three years. Yeah. Huh. So by the time they broke, I had no rights to them anyway. So like they knew something I didn't know. Like they had a vision of where they wanted to go. And I, you know, it, it just wasn't working at the time when I was trying to do it. And I did try, you know, I tried to push them. You know, I, I put them on what was arguably one of the biggest punk shows back then. It was like Fugazi, Offspring, and 411 at the Hollywood Palladium. Sold out. Wow. You know, so I did try to push Offspring, but to hear Brian talk, you know, it's, you hear Brian talk, he'd say, I didn't, I didn't try and do anything for the band. I was just like, oh, that's not really true. I tried really hard. You just weren't popular when I had you. Right. And I didn't, I didn't have the, the means like Epitaph to promote a band, you know? I don't think I'm going to get a, a video on MTV through Nemesis. Sure, and it's also you know you're f- four or five years early, like just right. stuff wasn't as popular right then. Like that was right. I mean, I, mean, was, I wasn't around, so I, I shouldn't speak on it. I should ask you. No, no, no. But you're right. But you're like eighty nine, eighty nine is a weird year for punk, right? Like straight edge hardcore right. is like kind of popping, but for like punk, eighty nine is is interesting. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It was, you know. The funny thing too is back then, like in that short period where Carrie Nation was going, I mean, we we were packing clubs every time we played, and Offspring couldn't get thirty people into a show at that time. Sure, they, you know, but that's just <laughs> yeah. I funny re- how uh, yeah, it's funny how that plays. I really, I really like this early stuff though, and and. I like I it the reason to believe and this offspring stuff sound really similar to me. Um and there's and there's nothing really after that that ever sounds like this stuff again. So I just I kinda have a warm spot for it. Um but Yeah, I, but I, I, I thought like, it, Go ahead. I thought Ignite tried to a little bit in the early, you know. Yes, they have a little bit of that like where it's it's melodic but it's like a little bit of a darker melody. I can totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But Ignite really leaned into the speed. Um, and, and this stuff is it's a little more of like up-tempo, mid-tempo. Um, right. So a little different. Um, 89 yeah. also, 
another seven inch that I, that I absolutely love the against the wall identify me seven inch oh yeah that's an interesting one yeah what what, what makes it interesting you think well the, the, the interesting part was um there was a band on one of the live seven inches I did called Push the Side. Sure. And that was that the singer of Push the Side was the bass player in Against the Wall. Randy um Randy Johnson. Yes, Randy Johnson. Yeah, that's him. And um I was supposed to I was gonna put out the push the side seven inch, um, which I wanted to go in and record them all their songs, you know, I want new recordings and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know, something went sour. Like, I don't know what happened. And like, I didn't end up doing the push the side seven inch. And then all of a sudden Madrid comes at me with the against the wall. I'm like, Oh, okay. Of all the people, like Madrid was like connected to all these other labels. And I was like, none of these other guys, wanted oh i don't know why they wouldn't want to do this you know right yeah so i was uh i, I was kind of baffled but really happy i got to do it because it was a good really good seven inch yeah it's a good record and i don't did the push aside ever even come out i think that they just did a demo it no? came out on indecision way later though not until yeah, the way 2000s. later and yeah. it was just a real they just took the demo and put it on a seven inch right Right, but way, way after the fact. Oh, way after the fact. Yeah, okay. That's right. Um, in 1990, this is super cool, you do the Uniform Choice demo. And and I was wondering, you do a double 7-inch. Why why do a double 7-inch instead of like an LP? Because I thought it would be... That, that gets back to my friend with um, Sympathy for the Record Industry. He was always doing these weird formats, like instead of doing a seven inch record he did a five inch record instead right. of doing um you know I, I, I you know what i think I, I think part of it too was i realized you could you could fit if you if you did it right and did it at the right speed you could fit a whole lp onto a couple seven inches because i'd seen it with bootlegs right like some of those out of print bootlegs would come out and they come out on seven inches rather than LPs. Yeah. We're seven. So inches. I, I just thought it would be, I just thought it would be cooler. It is super cool. It, would, it is. It's super cool. I, I, I like the whole idea of the gatefold. I like the idea of, you know, using that, that iconic image on the front. And it's just, uh, it just, it just, I, I think I was just trying to be, creative and think out of the box you know i didn't uh, just another boring lp no let's do it as a double seven inch yeah was it hard to track that stuff down at that time you want this is the funny thing it was right around that same time period where um i was um dave Mello, who was the bass player in uniform choice was actually my right hand man like my my assistant, when I would, there was a, a short period after Golden Voice when I worked for this other company, and Dave Mello was my assistant. And this one time, I forget, for whatever reason, I was at his house, 
and I went in the closet, and there's these reels for the Uniform Choice demo. I was like, you have the reels for that? <laughs> He's like, yeah. And like, of course, my light bulb went off of me. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, I, I should re- we should release that. That's never been released on a record, you know? And so I was, I was able to. I was very lucky. That's so rad. And then how did you feel like, I think maybe five years ago, they, like, there was like an even more original Uniform Choice demo that came out, like before Dubar sang? Oh, you know, I, I did hear something about that. Like, yeah, the pre-Dubar recordings. Yeah, I, I don't know. And they're like a totally different band, though, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a totally different band. It's not, it's not like, it's not the uniform choice you want to remember. I don't, I don't know. In my opinion, can you speak a little bit on them? Because I'm always kind of curious. Like, what, what was their impact? Like, coming out the gate, like, do they do a demo and they blow up and they're super influential, or are they influential after Screaming for Change comes out? Um, can you just speak on that band a little bit? Um. I can say that they put on a really good live show and I think, and they toured quite a bit and they had those aspirations of, uh, wanting to be, wanting to be a big band. But, um, as far as doing the demo and blowing up, I, I don't know what point I think, I think it probably had more to do with me putting them on, good shows like i put them on some olympic auditorium shows good fender shows i think the combination of they had good songs and they had a good live show i think that just built it up yeah and were they did they have to take a lot of shit or were they like kind of universally loved because they they are a pretty direct in your face band and and playing some mixed punk shows you could see how they could stand out yeah, no, the, they didn't really have any trouble. They were, um, I mean, Dubar was big, imposing physical presence. Um, Pat Dyson was a big, like, both those guys are, like, guys that probably could have had college careers in baseball and football, you know. or They, they, they weren't, like, to be taken lightly. Like, they would, they would you swung on them, they were going to swing back. Right. Yeah. So, and and Vic wasn't small either. And the only small one would have been Dave, and there was more than enough to back him up. Sure. Yeah. So cool. Um, the, you do a seven inch for a band called Fishwife, and that just stands yeah. out. I I got one of my best friends is this guy named Micah, and he works at a restaurant in uh, Portland called the Fishwife. So I just got to oh, wow. I just I just got to ask about this band. What are they all about? I this has been on my uh my discogs want list forever, but I'm waiting to like buy it for a dollar or two. Oh so. right, right. Um I wish I I wish I had an extra copy, I'd just give it to you, but I, I don't think I do. I'll I'll get it eventually. Uh, yeah. Um I'll look through my stuff if because there's a couple records that I have doubled them. Okay. But um if, if I have one, I'll I'll send it to you. But um Fishwife is part of the San Diego scene. Okay. Which, like, this was me in my head thinking, well, Seattle is blowing up. Well, San Diego's got a good scene, too. 
I'm going to help San Diego blow up. So I started putting out these bands like Pitchfork, who turned into Rocket from the Crypt, you know, and sure. and and all that. And then the bands like Fishwife was just friends of friends of those those guys. Okay, cool. So that, it was basically a it was um actually what's the band now with the guys from Rocket? It's called God dang it. Um, oh. I would never. I, I would never be able to tell yeah. you. Yeah, it's, I'm just drawing a blank on it. But it's the band who is now. It's basically two guys from Pitchfork. It's Rick and John from Pitchfork with Gar, who I think was in Fishwife. Okay, that's cool. So, so someone so, from Fishwife is still still active. That rules. Yeah. Yeah, that rules. Now you do have your sympathy for the record industry, White Stripe Seven Inch in 1990 because you do. Huh? Uh, well, no, you do a super early Brujeria record. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. How cool is that? You do Brujeria yeah. De Monaco in 1990. That was that was just cool because the the guy who gave it to me, like, I don't think I even listened to it. I don't even think I. I I just said, yeah, you're doing it. Yeah, I wanted to. I'll put it out. <laughs> like I just sight unseen. Same thing with um, chorus. You know, I didn't have to hear a song. I just like I knew if Banks and uh, Reg- or um, Banks and um, Isaac were going to do it together, it was going to be good. Right. Yeah. It's just it's such a. When I was going through your catalog, I was like, what is it? The same band? Like, oh, okay, it is. What the fuck? So super cool. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brujeria, um, they, um, have, they were so, they were so funny because like people really thought like that they were like Mexican drug lords and like they were re- like they were really made up. Like it wasn't this fake band. It was like this, this Mexican like death metal band or something. Right. Yeah. So cool. Um, I even had Steve Albini. You know Steve Albini? Of course. Yeah, yeah. He called me out of the blue one night. He's like, what's the deal with Brujeria? Like, are, the, are those real real guys, or are they, are they just people? He, like, I get a random phone call in the middle of the night from <laughs> Steve Albini asking me questions about Brujeria. <laughs> that just makes doing all of Nemesis totally worth it right there. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, pretty random and bizarre. Yeah, so cool. Um, another one I plucked out was, I love the, the Iceman cometh seven inch, um, just, just for chokes banter alone, all the seven inch, like you capturing that when he was like, yeah, all these old men like cleared you out of the pit. I don't remember what he says, but something like that. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. How good was Slapshot? They were, well, they were, they're amazing. They were so good. Yeah. The funny thing about that show was though, it was packed. It didn't make a penny. Like it got me basically banned from the whiskey for like years because I put on a show that didn't sell alcohol. <laughs> yeah, they sold and then like beers. I had all the all the stage diving and you know craziness. They didn't want to deal with that, so I kind of I kind of put one over on them and and I paid the price actually for for doing it. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, I got a good seven inch out of it, but I, I uh, actually that was the beginning of the end of that promoter I was working with too. 
Yeah, I would. I, I would argue great seven inch. I think it's it's oh. fucking awesome. I mean, it, it's just what what you've done on some of these seven inch comps is like just capture a snapshot in time. Um, and I, I I wish I could have done more. Yeah, I mean, you're you're curating these things is insane because all all the bands actually really stand the test of time. You know, like normally when you look at comps, it's like you know half the bands have some merit and half the bands it's like well. You know, they were something, you know, but like, yeah. it's like when you do these seven inch comps, it's like literally all bangers, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, 91, you do chorus, uh, the truth yeah. gives wings the strength LP as well as the, yeah. uh, the chorus seven inch. Um, how was this band received when they came out? Um, fairly, uh, I think in the beginning, it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> I mean, to hear, I mean, I've, I've read interviews with Isaac where he was, he says that Epitaph was after him and stuff. And like, for some reason they decided to go with me. And I, I, I don't know. But I, I don't think there was like that, um, I, I, you know, it's hard for me to judge, honestly. They, they were popular. I think they were more popular later, though. I think they like. I think yeah, it's 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 hard for me to have a clear picture in my head of. It's it's funny because uh, I just I just remembered trying really hard to put out put out the records and was really excited about it. And yeah, now I now I can remember. Now it just came to me. Um, there was a show at Toe Jam with Chorus, and that was just insanity. Packed room, not that big, you know, hundreds and two hundred tops, but like everybody singing the words and just like really into it. Yeah. Do you does does any of this stuff like make you feel really good? Like when you see. Like a room like that, even if it's just two hundred people, I mean that's a lot of fucking people. If you think about it, like if there's two hundred people motivated to like pack up and sing along, and you know yeah. that like you're you're the guy that made this happen. Maybe they would have had the record come out somewhere else, but maybe it wouldn't have been as big. You know, like you you are part of the catalyst of what makes this happen. Like, does that ever sink in? And and how does it make you feel, if anything? Um, I never really thought about it like that. I just, I don't know. I, I just did what I did at a time when it seemed like it needed to be done. Yeah. And, and like, it's nice to look back. I mean, like when, um, when, um, Patrick from Reaper records wanted to put out my, my book, I was like flattered because I liked Reaper records. Sure. I liked Reaper records before I ever met Patrick or even knew him. And so like the fact that he says, you know, my label influenced his label. I was like, "Whoa, well, that's a compliment." Because that was like the first time I'd really thought about it in probably ten years. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Well, he has great taste. I mean, almost everything he puts out is insane. Yeah, I agree. the The last one that I plucked out um, that I love, I absolutely love this LP. Is the Billingsgate No Apologies LP? Oh yeah, yeah. 
how did that come about? Because they're uh, were they they were Chicago, not Minneapolis, correct? Yeah, they were uh, they were Chicago. That was when I was trying to get a band from every major city. Sure. And um, I don't think I ever. Um, I don't think I ever got a New York City band. I should have, if I would. It just makes me mad because I could have released that. There was a live agnostic front show that I put on, and oh. I should have released that as a seven inch because that would have been a really good one. Yeah. But oh, oh, getting back to Billy's Gate, um, I had heard the seven inch. I think was on Victory. Yes. Yeah, and I was I was thought that was a great seven inch, and so I reached out to them. Do you want to do a record? I think I, yeah, I'm pretty sure I reached out to them and asked them if they wanted to do an, I don't know if I asked them if they wanted to do an LP or, but I, I think I reached out to them and it just, uh, it just kind of uh, blossomed. Yeah. I love this record. It's like, I like the seven inch. Okay. But then this LP, like they really lean into like that verbal assaulty style. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that early verbal assaulty style too i mean probably you can tell by the bands i was releasing like with reason to believe and you know had like that melody and you know sure yeah but like not not glossy but like they do have that melody yes yeah yeah so good yeah and you know billingsgate a couple of those guys they went on uh to do the band dillinger four they're actually like my favorite band Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, I think it's two of the guys. They're in Dillinger Four, like still to this day. So. Oh uh, wow, that's awesome. To yeah, know. and that band like rips. They uh they kill it. Like they're my favorite band, legitimately. So. Uh, oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Is there any uh, records that that stand out for you that you think that I didn't touch on? Um, the only ones I was I I could think of were um, I did um. Hunger Farm, which really wasn't a hardcore record. It was more of an alternative sounding. And um, I thought they had great promise. Like, but it's just a case of the right place at the right time. And, you know, some of these people had vices that got the better of them. And, you know, it just doesn't work out. Where were they from? I also thought Point Blank. Okay. Point Blank, who was on the East Meets West show, sure, and they turned it to Bone Saw. Okay, I thought they were they were amazing. They were so good. They were so good at that East Meets West show. They brought like um, they um, somebody worked at a toy store, and they got like cases of Mad Balls. You remember Mad Balls? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the toy. They had they had like cases of them. And they started a mad ball fight during the show at that East Meets West show. And just, <laughs> it, was, it was so crazy. And, and their singer, Chris, was just a really underrated singer. They were an underrated band, I thought. I'll revisit that. I'll revisit that. That's yeah. so cool. Point, start with Point Blank, though. Okay. They were a they're, they're good band. Cool. Um what what happened? Like, why does Nemesis end? Nemesis ended because I couldn't get the distribution 
to pay me what they owed me. I wanted to go completely independent. I realized when I first started, I had distribution with this guy, Kane, and he helped me acquire relationships with recording studios and manufacturing studios and whatnot. But then when he moved to Cargo, he kind of like sold his soul to, I don't know that he sold his soul, but you know, he moved on to a, a corporation where he couldn't make his, his decision wasn't the final say, like it had to run through another bunch of filters. And, and these people didn't like me for some reason. I was like, I've got this label that, you know, I think is worthwhile and I want to do a lot more, but you guys got to be up front with me. And they just, they just never were. And, you know, I mean, I just, I was, yeah, I wasn't the smartest businessman. I had no business savvy. You know, it, it was never, it, I, I didn't start out with Nemesis to try and build a corporation. I just wanted to put out my friend's band. Sure. And then I got some ideas about, well, if I'm going to keep doing this, maybe I can do this and this. And I tried a few different things. But when I lost control and I, I just couldn't get what I felt I was owed to break free, then I just, at the same time, I was starting to, I was uh, tattooing. And I had just acquired an apprenticeship with a really well-known tattooer. And uh, so then I just kind of let the label go. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, is if that was a smooth transition or if, like, when when you started your tattooing career, did you start doing stuff uh, like before Nemesis ended? And have you always been way into doing art? Because you're not just a tattooer; you do paintings and so forth as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I've 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 always liked I've always liked dabbling, you know. I've, but um, obviously, once you know you start tattooing, you're you're drawing all the time. So uh, obviously, I had to take it to a much more serious level. Yeah. And, and what was that like? Um, kind of like transitioning it's out kind from of being, bittersweet. yeah. Cause, bittersweet. You, Cause you go from being fully immersed in music to, to kind of like to do an apprenticeship. Like is it, it's like an internship. You're starting from scratch in a new, new field. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you know, I was kind of, uh, I kind of let the music go for couple of years well i had to because you know you have to kind of dedicate all your time to learning what you're learning your craft and what you're doing so sure you have to fully immerse into that but that's one of the yeah you know but that's one of the great things about you though frank is is you know i don't know you personally but but when people talk about you one of the good things that people always say is he's someone that never like stopped loving hardcore you know so, like, maybe in yeah. your head you think you stepped away from it for a couple of years, but you weren't like someone that was, you weren't a tourist and dropped out or anything. No, 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 I didn't, yeah. I just meant I just, like, I just didn't go to shows for, uh, actually, I did go to shows, but, you know, I just, I would just kind of, you know, I wasn't as involved. You know, I went from being fully involved in almost every aspect of a scene to just kind of, hanging out and that was okay yeah i was okay with that yeah so 
you really took the tattooing though, and and you've been doing it since. Have, what yeah. Is, what is like the most satisfying part of that? Um, the most satisfying part of it is when you get someone that you don't, you've never maybe met before, and you guys just vibe on every level from the idea he has to your execution of it to, you know, like making a friend, like going from not knowing somebody to making someone a, a friend. You know, I don't know. I think that's, you know, be really being a, being able to do what I know I'm capable of doing too. You know, really not trying to hold me back, you know, just like believing in my vision. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've loved all my tattoo artists, like to a man, you know? So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting relationship, right? It's like kind of, uh, it's kind of like a lot of your best friends, you know, that you don't have to talk to for a long time. And, but there's always like a, a weird connection, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 Super cool. Especially now with social media and, you know, you know, you can reach out to pretty much anybody you want to. Yeah, a little easier to stay in touch. Yeah. Yeah. So, is there anything that you think I missed, Frank, or do you feel pretty good about this? No, I'm fine with this. If you're fine with it, I'm good with it. No, I love it. I, I think you did a great job of, like, painting a picture of, like, the early days, and, and I wanted to nerd out and speak on some of this Nemesis stuff that I love. And I think you oh, did it. I mean, I'm really glad you loved it. I mean, that's, that, that's what I always I like hearing now is, like, how many people did like what I did? Because at the time, like, I was all over the place. I mean, you know, when you look back, I mean, my musical taste was here, there, and everywhere. You know I mean? <laughs> and it probably would have gotten stranger if I would have kept going. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, I mean, I would... I, I mean, was... I even released a comic book. I released a comic book on Nemesis. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> it's so bizarre and random. yeah. No, I mean, like, the the curation of the stuff that you did is, because I missed it, obviously. So, like, you know, when someone can discover a catalog years after you've stopped doing it and really appreciate and love a lot of, like, these pieces that you did, I mean, you were able to curate timeless music. And uh, Thank you. Yeah, I think that that's, like, that should be the point of the label, right? Like, that's why, yeah. you know, Rev catalogs and... And, and different labels, Discord, of course, BYO, like these labels are timeless because they, they chose the right bands that never get old, you know? Yeah. Like I still, yeah. well, I mean, I was lucky, I think in a lot of respects too, but I do think there was intelligence behind my luck. It wasn't total luck. <laughs> this this can't be total luck anyway. No. I mean, at least you were, you were warm enough to like be able to make friendships with people that were talented, yeah. that were talented and creative, and you have the wherewithal yeah. to like see a project through. A lot of people can't do that. That's true. It's very true. You know, I've been in my share of bands that I couldn't get past one or two rehearsals. <laughs> but you, you got a record out. You got a record out of one of your bands. Yeah, yeah. At least they did do that. Yeah, so that's rad. But yeah, I really appreciate your time, Frank. Oh, um, no problem. Do you feel like you've been well represented? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, it's all good. Cool. Yeah. All right. So I really okay. I appreciate your time and thanks so much. All right, man. It was good talking to you. I'll look for that Fishwife record 
if I find it, I will text you or call you and get your address and mail it to you. Appreciate. It. And then, but then I'm going to just send it to my friend Micah. So we might want to just cut uh, me. Out. We might want to just cut me out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, man. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. All right. Bye bye.